Rarecast listeners, coming together to help each other is what the rare disease community does best. As the COVID-19 outbreak continues to spread around the world, you'll have questions. Global Genes has created a resource page with information to help. Please visit www.globalgenes.org to see the resource list. And if you have links to add, please send them to advocacy at globalgenes.org. Stay safe and remember, we're all in this together. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. When Keith MacArthur's son Bryson was born, he was a happy and loving baby. Soon, though, Bryson began missing developmental milestones, and doctors determined he had a neurological disorder. After nearly a decade, Bryson was diagnosed with a variant in his GRIN1 gene. Keith MacArthur, who today is CEO and head of science for the Cure GRIN Foundation, tells Bryson's story in an eight-part podcast series produced with the CBC called Unlocking Bryson's Brain. We spoke to MacArthur about Bryson, the efforts of the Cure Grin Foundation to find a cure for the condition, and what he hopes to accomplish with the podcast series. Keith, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. We're going to talk about your son Bryson, Grin Disorders, and Unlocking Bryson's Brain, the podcast series you're doing with the CBC. The first two episodes of eight are now available and they've been released and they're being released each week. Let's start with Bryson though. Tell me about your son Bryson as a person. How old is he? What's he like? Yeah, so Bryson is 13 years old and uh, a couple of months after he was born, we started to notice that he wasn't developing typically. And, uh, you know, the first clue was that we went in to get baby pictures done. And the photographer tried to do that kind of classic photo where they get the babies to prop up their heads on their little fists. Um, And it wouldn't work for Bryson. His head kept falling over. And so that was kind of the first clue for us that Bryson wasn't developing typically. And over the next few months, uh, doctors confirmed that, yes, there was something different about Bryson. Um, and over time, he missed more and more milestones, both physically and developmentally. But it wasn't until uh, almost after a decade that we finally got a diagnosis for Grin Disorder. And uh, what that means for Bryson is that he is nonverbal. He uh, you know, can't talk. He needs a wheelchair to get around and, and us you know, to pilot him, to push him in that wheelchair. Um, he has these kind of violent seizure-like episodes where... He will often hurt himself or those around him. Um, but other than that, uh, other than those violent episodes, he's mostly a happy little guy, very social, loves being around other people, and uh, just just great to have him and his positive energy as part of our family. Now, why did it take so long to get a diagnosis? Well, doctors did all kinds of testing. Um, so he had you know a number of different blood tests. He had MRIs. 
and a muscle biopsy um, and a spinal tap, but everything sort of came up empty. And it wasn't until he got whole exome sequencing and doctors were able to compare his DNA with my DNA and my wife's DNA that uh, they were finally able to get that diagnosis of Grin disorder. So um, Bryson has a single letter change. So one of the 6.4 billion letters in his DNA is, uh, is different. And as a result of that, one of the proteins in his brain that is essential for learning and memory uh, does not form properly. And uh, that, that's kind of what, what changes everything for him. So it was a spontaneous de novo mutation uh, that probably happened at conception. After 10 years of, of living with a, a medical mystery, what was it like to get a diagnosis? You know, I don't think we realized until we got it how big a change it would make in our lives. So, um, you know, after 10 years, we'd sort of gotten to the point where we weren't even sure we would ever get a diagnosis. Um, we figured it was probably something genetic, but getting that, that, the biggest change that it made in our lives was that it allowed us to find a community. So on the drive home from, the, from our appointment with the geneticist, you know, we were Googling um, Grin to learn about the disorder, um, to learn about this gene, but we were also trying to find other people who had the same disease. And at the time, at the time, we could only find seven other people in the world who had a mutation in their Grin One gene, um, and they were already in a, in a Facebook group together. So we joined that group, and now we're connected with hundreds of other people around the world who have uh, mutations in their in their Grin genes. And having that community has made a huge difference to us. The other big change for my wife in particular was that until we got this diagnosis, she kind of was blaming herself. You know, there's all this pressure on moms to be uh, perfect in their pregnancy. And it's everything, obviously, from, from not, you know, smoking or doing drugs or drinking during pregnancy, but even things like, you know, you're not supposed to eat sushi or luncheon meats or uh women are scared of, of using certain makeups or hair dyes. Um, and it puts a lot of pressure on, on moms. And, you know, Laura tried to do everything right, but there was still always this feeling of guilt that maybe Bryson's genetic illness had something to do with something she had done or hadn't done. And getting that diagnosis and learning that this was a random, spontaneous mutation um, allowed her to move on and let go of a lot of that guilt. Grin is actually a, a cluster of disorders. What are Grin disorders, and, and what were you told about them when you got your diagnosis? Well, when we got the diagnosis, the main question that we had and our greatest fear was whether this was degenerative, whether this was a disease that you know, could potentially shorten Bryson's life. And so that was the one thing the doctors could tell us, that, that it didn't appear to be degenerative. So that was great. Um, beyond that, they didn't know a lot. As I said, there weren't a lot of kids that had been diagnosed with this. But um, over time, what we've learned is that there are seven different Grin genes that come together to form the NMDA receptor, which is an important part of brain neurons and, and helps form uh, connections between neurons, which, which is an essential part of learning and memory. And those NMDA receptors have been uh, identified in a bunch of other diseases, everything from Alzheimer's to schizophrenia to depression uh, to 
uh, chronic pain disorders. Um, but what what uh, happens in in Bryson's case is that these these are single uh, gene changes that have uh, a big impact on, on the brain. And so, of the seven genes, we know that there are four that uh, can be uh, pathogenic when there's when there's variants, and so those are GRIN1, GRIN2A, GRIN2B, and GRIN2D, and each of those genes uh, has a, a slightly different presentation and symptoms. Um, seizures are common in some and not in others. Uh, some some kids have very uh, s- severe learning disabilities, like my son Bryson, uh, but in uh, GRIN2A, for example. Um, there are many kids who have very mild intellectual disabilities or, or none at all, but have quite uh, intense seizures. So um, there are a variety uh, of symptoms, but what we're hoping is that the, the treatments may be similar because essentially what's going on is that these NMDA receptors are either, um, in some cases, they're not being activated enough, and in other cases, they're overactive. So either using um, small molecule drugs that can uh, boost the quiet ones or mute the loud ones. We're, we're hoping that either that might help, or that you know all the new developments in gene therapy that there could be something there that could help uh, people with grin disorder. How well understood is the way grin disorders manifest themselves and progress? It's um, becoming more well understood, but um, you know one of the things that's interesting is I keep referring to to kids, and that's only because most of the people that we know that have been diagnosed are, are children. So, um, you know, we think that we know of, of maybe a 1,000 people um, in the world that have been diagnosed with grin disorder so far, but there are estimates that uh, the number, the total number is, is you know, 100,000 or 200,000, but most of these people just haven't had that exome, whole exome sequencing or whole genome sequencing done yet. And so, you know, we know sort of how the disease progresses into up to about age 30, which is the, the oldest patients that have had that genetic sequencing done so far and have been able to get the disease diagnosed. Um, but we don't really have a complete natural history study because we're not aware of patients who are older than that yet. So the, the positive news, what we see is that people do keep progressing into adulthood through their 20s. People are uh, picking up new skills. Um, some people, for example, are, are starting to become, um, you know, partly verbal uh, in their in their late teens or early twenties. So that that progression does offer promise, um, but at the same time, we don't know, you know, how, how far they do continue to progress. And are there any treatment options available today? There aren't really. There are some drugs that are known to target the NMDA receptor. So. Um, you know, one well-known drug that uh, is an, an antagonist for the NMDA receptor, meaning that it you know, lowers uh, the function of, of the receptor, is memantine. Uh, ketamine is another one that, that obviously has some, um, you know, dangerous side effects. So there are some drugs that are known, um, but none are really considered to be, uh, you know, perfect yet. Some, some parents have trialed some of them um, to mixed success. Um, one of our goals at Cure Grin is to have the first double-blind uh, study of a therapy for grin disorder by the end of, of 2021. Um, so we, we haven't had one yet in our disease space. 
About two years ago, you decided to devote yourself to finding a cure for the condition. How did you go about doing that? Well, I'll tell you first the reason why, and that's that, um, you know, I talked about the community that had come together. And so we've been having get-togethers uh, initially for GRIN-1 patients in particular, and then once we realized that it was a broader set of disorders for um, all of the different GRINs together. But we had one a couple of years ago here in Toronto where families from across North America came in, and um, we invited researchers from the Hospital for Sick Children and the University of Toronto, uh, experts in, in GRIN and NMDA receptors to come and speak to this group. And I was really surprised to hear a message from them of hope that this was a disease where they really believed that there was opportunity for cures and therapies, um, partly because this receptor is very responsive, is known to be quite responsive to, to pharmacological intervention, um, but also partly just because of, you know, all the changes that things like CRISPR are making and, and offering as promise, as new promise for rare diseases. And another piece of research that was presented at this conference was a researcher who does work on mice with GRIN, and she basically built a mouse with a GRIN mutation and a non-off switch and let the mouse develop with the, the mutation into adulthood, and then when the mouse was an adult, turned off the mutation and found that the mouse's uh, phenotype improved as well. So once the variant, the mutation was turned off, the mouse became more social, became stronger, um, became more clever, could solve mazes that it couldn't do before. And so, you know, that basically what came out of that was the hope that even in teenagers or adults with GRIN, that it's not too late to, to turn back the, the symptoms if we can correct the, the mutation. Um, so basically, that, that said, that offered a lot of hope, and I kind of felt like I had no choice but to do whatever I could to try and find therapies or a cure for, for my son <clears throat> with grin disorder. So it started just by re reaching out to researchers uh, around the world and uh, people at biotech and pharma companies. Um, but then I also got together with other parents to start a foundation called Cure Grin, where we're basically focused on you know, finding cures and therapies for grin disorder. What's the research strategy you're pursuing, and what's the landscape today for research into grin disorders? So we are pursuing a, uh, a path essentially where um, we're starting by trying to build as big and broad a research network as possible. So we're starting by uh, we're starting with investing in what we're calling foundational research. So it's things like animal models, not just building new ones, but also um, paying to make it easier for different researchers to share those animal models with each other, um, natural history study, patient registry, and also research into biomarkers. These are the four things that we think really help attract both public and private researchers to rare diseases. Um, and we were lucky enough to be selected as part of the CZI Rare as One program. And, you know, a big part of what they do is, is to help support us as we're building out a global research network. So that, that's kind of the, the first piece is to, um, you know, do the, the foundational research and then build out this network. And then the second piece is to leverage that network. So it includes parents, it includes clinicians, it includes doctors, um, it also includes researchers, 
um, both at universities and hospitals and at biotech. Um, and then to bring that group together to identify uh, prioritized uh, or a shared list of priorities that, uh, and, and questions that we need answered in the grin space. And then once we kind of align on those priorities, we will uh, you know, invest funds in those key areas. So um, it's something that was an idea that uh, you know, the, the Castleman um, group has talked about before David Flagenbaum's published on it, but it's this idea that instead of just opening up your grants for RFPs, you actually do the work up front and identify what the research priorities should be and then um, allocate resources that way. So that, that's kind of how we're, we're doing it. We're following um, that model that the David Fagenbaum has, has recommended. You're a, a journalist by training. You worked on a podcast series with CBC for now uh, a year. What was the hope in, in doing this series? Yeah, so when I you know decided to start focusing on finding cures and therapies, being a journalist, I just brought my recorder with me to all of the meetings. And as I was talking to researchers, I realized that this you know, could be a really compelling story. So I go back in time in the podcast, I talk about, you know, the first couple episodes talk about us searching for a diagnosis, what it means to finally get a diagnosis, um, but then also goes into all of the different kinds of ways that we explore trying to find cures, um, what what CRISPR could mean, not just for GRIN, but for other rare genetic diseases. Um, we, we spend a whole episode where we travel to um, the Boston area, which is the, the kind of world headquarters for life science and rare disease research and, and meet with biotech companies there and people at Harvard and MIT. Um, but the hope in putting this podcast together, one, is that, you know, selfishly, I'm hoping that someone who's listening will have a clue that can help us to find uh, find cures, something that we're missing that maybe we can add to the mix that can get us there faster. Another hope that I have in putting this out there is that it will kind of offer comfort to people who are just, you know, getting their diagnosis for the first time. I've already heard from a number of other families, both Grin families and, and those with other rare diseases, that just how, you know, similar that, that journey is uh, when you first learn that your child has a, a rare diagnosis, the mourning that you go through for the child that you thought you were going to have and, and don't have, the way that you eventually you know, come to cherish this child that you do have but still want to do whatever you can to make their life easier. Um, but I'm hoping that this podcast can offer some comfort and give a sense of community to people uh, with any kind of rare disease, whether they, they've already been lucky enough to have that diagnosed or not. This is a very personal and emotional podcast. I, I know journalists hate making themselves the story generally. Was there any hesitation in doing this? Not really. I mean, I, uh, you know, I think I, I, was, I worked as a journalist for about 10 years in, in newspapers primarily. Um, then I went and, and did other things for a while, and then I, when I you know, came back sort of to journalism, I started um, blogging and obviously, you know, blogging is more, tends to be a more personal medium. And I was already talking about myself and writing about Bryson in that blog. So it was sort of a natural extension. I think if, I'd, if it was something I tried to take on um, 
15 years ago when I was in the midst of being a hardened journalist. It might have been harder then, but uh, I've sort of made the transition to get to a place where it was easier. The title of the podcast is Unlocking Bryson's Brain. What did you want to suggest with this title? Well, essentially that Bryson, although he's, he's 13 in his chronological age, his development is sort of being at the level of a 12-month-old. And, um, you know, there, there's, so, so it's partly about kind of unlocking it from, from where it is at that developmental level. But it's also the idea that, you know, I have these recurring dreams that I talk about in the podcast where Bryson is talking to me. And sometimes he's talking for the first time. And sometimes, you know, we're going back and forth with a detailed conversation as if we've been doing it for years. And then I wake up and, you know, it's sort of bittersweet because I, I long for that, to be able to have that conversation with my son. Um, so I think with, with unlocking, what I'm trying to get at is that, that I know that there's a lot going on in his mind. And I would love for him to be able to share that with me and with others, for him to be able to make his own decisions and tell his own story. And in an ideal scenario, in an ideal outcome, for him to be able to live independently. It's interesting to me that earlier in this discussion when we were talking, you expressed the almost surprise at the hope you found in the community you connected to around grin disorders. One of the things I think is striking about listening to the podcast is how it resonates with hope. What gives you hope? I think what really gives me hope is the fact that we are at this period of time where life science and medical research offers so much promise that it really feels like a bunch of rare diseases that we thought of as incurable could be cured in the next decade or two. And that's partly because of CRISPR and partly because of other genetic therapies. Um, so yeah, the, the hope is, is, is real. Like it, it really feels like, um, you know, we're not tilting at windmills when we talk about trying to find cures for rare diseases, that we are at a period where it really is possible. Well, the podcast is Unlocking Bryson's Brain. You can find it by going to hyperurl.co forward slash Bryson. We'll put a link in the text of the description of this episode. Keith MacArthur, CEO and Head of Science for the Cure Grin Foundation. Keith, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.